You're listening to the Calvary Catechism Podcast, where we seek to defend doctrine, dispel deception, and develop disciples. Welcome back to the Calvary Catechism. Uh, we are here and back, sort of, um, because it, it's been we've been MIA for a while, Travis. Um, are you there, by the way? Sort of. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, let me let me just preempt this Uh-oh. with: we are on Zoom today because uh, we have a guest with us who I will talk about in just a second. Um, and so you'll have to forgive us if there's some lagging and uh, things that don't go super well because we're not all in the same place right now. But um, Travis is here. Um, all right, and we also have with us uh, somebody that I knew. Uh, I can I feel like I can say way back in the day now because um, it's been yeah, at least sure. ten years. Uh, <laughs> more, so, more than that. Yeah. <laughs> so Corey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and and maybe why you're here, and we'll get into talking in just a minute. Uh, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, Kenny. Uh, so I know Kenny from uh, Word of Life, uh, where we worked at summer camp together probably 12, 13 years ago now. Uh, yeah. So that was a while ago. Uh, but I think we've talked a few times kind of in the past few years, I think over just a few issues, um, just theological issues and stuff. I've since that time of Word of Life, I've gone on a bit of a, a bit of a change in faith journey myself. That's a cheesy way to say it. Uh, so I, I would now consider myself uh, not, no longer a Christian, um, but, but these ideas uh, about Christianity, about faith, and the seriousness of the implications of losing your faith and how seriously you should take these ideas are something that I still value. So um, like I was telling Kenny before the podcast, uh, apologetic philosophy of religion type ideas are almost more important to me now than perhaps even when I was a Christian, because I think that these are important ideas for people to to look at and to be educated on to, and to uh, seriously consider, you know, yeah. especially like what we're going to talk about today, if if the implications are you know, possibly, you know, an, an, an eternal hell, then, you know, that's something that most people should, should consider. So that's a little bit about, uh, where I'm at and just kind of how I've changed over time, but I, I appreciate you, uh, uh, having the chance to uh, just talk about some of these things today. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, we will get into all of that and, uh, regular listeners to the podcast would know that we like to begin this podcast with kind of an icebreaker question, just something fun to not just to break the ice, but also to get some of the banter out of the way immediately. Cause at least for Travis and I, uh, we tend to banter too much. So we try to just like get the itch out and just move on. Um, so I have uh, our question for today. I'm going to pose it to all three of us. If, if Travis is even able to be involved in it, we'll see. Um, he's having some internet issues. So I may be solo today, but we're going to try. Um, if, if you could learn any one skill right now, if like you could just, whatever the skill is, you can just magically have it right now that you don't currently have, what would that skill be? Corey, I'm going to, I'm going to go to you first, since you're our guest today, I'm going to let you, uh, let you take the floor if you, if you have one. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I would, I would say, uh, any one skill I would say, uh, I would be able to speak and understand any language, uh, just cause man, that takes so much work to learn a language, but what yeah. if you could, what if you could, know and interpret every single language to where you could talk to everyone in the world 
without having the confusion of translation, which is yeah, can somewhat be related to what we're talking about today. For sure, uh, man. How how cool would that be? Yeah. That would be awesome. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I, I've got a couple. Uh, maybe the one that I'll I'll pick is I wish that I were able to 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 fix anything when it comes to like household issues. Like I Uh, wish, I wish I had the ability to just come in, figure out what the problem is and just fix it. Um, cause I'm terrible at that stuff. Sure. Yeah. And then you wouldn't have to go to home Depot and embarrass yourself by asking somebody for help. Yeah. Yeah. But then I could bring you along in case they don't speak English. So um, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) It's a good crossover. Um, So yeah, we're we're just going to pretend that Travis isn't here because I'm not sure that he is. Uh, Travis, you just if you can hear me, you'll interrupt whenever you feel feel like it because I know you're good at that. Um, But here's we're going to get started here in our discussion. Oh, there he is. So I can I can hear you guys. I'm I'm here listening to the whole thing. Can you hear me though? I I hear you now. Yes. So okay. what, what's one skill you want? I walked outside. I turned off the video. Just that, there's your fun fact. So yep. instead of making me walk around outside, so you'll, I, I'm here. I'm here. Good. Uh, I, now that I've, I've been studying Greek for a couple of years, I have realized how little I know of Greek and I really want to know it. So if I could like snap my fingers and have mastered the original language and like of line diagramming and everything, I'm starting to see like how fruitful that would be. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm learning that Corey's answer just superseded mine because now they (laughs) every single language I, I, I need to, I need to steal his answer, but, but being a professional break dancer would be a close second. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, I, I'm, I just had a mental image that I don't need in my brain. Um, <laughs> that, it's entertaining somewhat, but. <laughs> it oh, it'd be a good time. Uh, good. All right. So let's, let's dive into our topic at hand. Um, so this all began, this, this podcast is happening because Corey posted a, a question on uh, his Facebook account that I thought was worth talking about. Um, I am personally usually not the one to engage in Facebook conversations, not because I don't think they're ever helpful. Sometimes they really are. Um, but I just personally don't have the time um, to, because I want to give thoughtful responses and I want to take my time to, to really hammer out th- these, these discussions. And so Corey posted this question and you can kind of correct me on my wording if I have my wording wrong, Corey, but essentially it was, um, if you are a Christian, if you hold to Christianity as your, your belief, um, do you wish that universalism were true? Is that uh, an accurate way? Yeah. I think that that was how I phrased it. Yeah. 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 And I thought it was a, it was a worthwhile discussion for, for Christians to have. Um, And in, in a sense, um, the question is, do you wish that everybody's going to be saved in the end? If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus came to save us. um, Then do you wish that it were true that everybody, everybody is saved? Because generally speaking in Christianity, we believe that there are uh, some who will be saved and some who will not, uh, that we believe that there are those that are, are repent and place their faith in Christ who will spend eternity in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and then there are those who do not repent um, and place their faith in Christ who will spend eternity um, under the wrath and condemnation of God in, in hell. And so on the podcast, we've been dealing with some difficult doctrines lately. Uh, and I say lately, even though it's been a while since we posted an episode, but this is one that's difficult, that is important for us to dive into. Um, so I wanted us to, to talk about that. But let's start 
Corey, with you kind of telling us why you asked that question. Like what, what made you post that on Facebook? What was your motivation behind that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think these days that's how I tend to use my Facebook account anyway, is trying to have good conversations with people that I may disagree with on important issues. Uh, and that question in particular, uh, if you're a Christian, do you wish that all would ultimately be saved? I think that that's a very challenging question because I, I mean, I, I was, I've been a Christian for most of my life and I can, I can still think how I would want to answer that. Uh, if I were still a Christian, my initial, my initial thought would be, well, yes, of course, of course, if, if everyone could go to save, I, if everyone could go to heaven, I would want that to happen. But I think also for many Christians, there's a lot of tension there because that may not be the, the picture that they believe the Bible teaches or what their church teaches that everyone will go there. So, so, so there's this tension between, okay, well, here's what I would wish would happen because I think that this is maybe a more gracious or loving thing, loving thing to happen, but, but God's wishes are different than mine. So they don't quite match up. So there's a little bit of maybe not inconsistency, but just there's a little bit of tension there between what maybe our wishes would be. And also what we think God's wishes and wills are uh, in that in that yeah. subject. So it's just, it's an interesting question. It, it, it raises a lot of additional questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, so Travis, I've been talking a lot. If you're still there, why don't you uh, give some response there or, or ask a further question? Well, my, the first question that came to my mind, Corey, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just wanting to dive deeper into yeah, yeah. Your mind and your perspective. What's the answer to your own question? What do you want? Yeah. So if, if I were answering it from the perspective of if I were still a, still a Christian, uh, absolutely. Yes. My, my answer would be yes. I, I wish that that were the case. Uh, I, I guess you could call the position uh, somewhat of a hopeful universalist, uh, which is a term that kind of gets thrown around in a lot of these a lot of these circles. There are many people who they may not agree that everyone will go to heaven. But man, they, sh they sure wish that that were the case. Uh, they sure wish that, man, if there's a way to interpret the Bible, if there's a way to um, understand that this is what the text is saying, that, yeah, I wish that were true, even if they don't necessarily believe it. So if I were a Christian, then most certainly, and kind of what I was telling Kenny before, um, this idea of a universalist Christianity is, is very persuasive to me uh, in possibly coming back to Christianity. Uh, so I do find a lot of, I think it solves a lot of, uh, maybe problems that I personally have with, I guess, believing Christianity completely. And I think that it, it does that for many people as well. Got you. Okay. Um, diving a little bit deeper into that. Why do you want it to be true? Yeah. Uh, so if we're, if we're think, let's think of, I guess, the, the classical or just traditional understanding of heaven and hell and Christianity. So uh, traditionally, uh, we were taught, especially in evangelical, uh, you know, Western Christianity, that hell is a place of eternal torment. Now, there are some annihilationists as well, 
there are you know, a handful of universalists in evangelicalism, but, but most of evangelicals would believe in a type of eternal conscious torment. Uh, that's a, that's a tough belief for, uh, I don't even think just non-believers. I think that's a tough belief for Christians to square with the idea of a loving God. So the, the tendency to, to think that well, ultimately there will be an option for redemption for everyone seems to solve some of those issues that make us uncomfortable when we think of a loving God, you know, allowing some of his creation to, you know, be suffer for eternity. Got you. So, but with that being said, how, how do you think that we can determine what is truth? Um, If I understand that this is what we want to be true and this, and, and, and from your perspective, from your worldview, this is what you want to be true. How would you then gauge what is truth? Yeah. So I think, I think that if from the Christian perspective, so let's say I was, if I were to, you know, fully believe in Christianity again, or if I were still a Christian and were considering these, these ideas, um, I would ultimately think that truth would come from God. And, uh, you know, I was raised evangelical. Uh, I tend to put little to no substance in the traditions of the church, uh, a little bit on experience, but not a whole lot. Most of what I would have formerly gone to truth is my standard uh, would be just what's found in the scripture. It would be uh, a scriptural case. Well, does what does the Bible actually teach about this idea? Got you. Okay. So where are you at now with that then? Uh, if that's where you were at, you know, the scriptures being your foundation when you were a professing Christian. Sure. How truth now. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, I think that we can get truth from a lot of different areas. I mean, I think that, and, and not unlike Christians, I think that everyone has to ultimately uh, presuppose uh, reason as you know, a, a method of truth gathering, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a non-believer, because uh, you ultimately have to use reason to get to uh, believing that the Bible is true or, uh, you know, putting your faith in something else. So I think that things like reason and things like just our common intuitions, uh, those things can lead to truth. But I think that there are probably multiple ways that I guess we currently can arrive at truth. Um so, I mean, my position here is somewhat interesting because I'm not, I'm not really a Christian, but I'm still persuaded by this one very Christian idea uh, of, of universalism. So I want to, I want to kind of differentiate between maybe what I currently believe and what I'm really persuaded by uh, within Christianity, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. If I can, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, Travis, and you might've been going here too, but um, would you, would you say that you believe that there is such a thing as, as an objective truth? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so you, you would then, would you then say um, kind of playing off of where you, what you just answered that people have to need to use their reason and logic to arrive at what is the objective truth? Um, yeah, I think that that's uh, 
generally the best that we can do to arrive at, at objective truth. I mean, I would yeah. be, I would believe in objective truth. I even believe in objective morals uh, and, and, and I'm a non-believer, which is, uh, you know, some, somewhat of a, a novel idea to, to some. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting yeah. to me. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to derail the conversation, but I don't, sure, yeah. I don't feel like I can avoid asking you um, yeah. how, how do you get there? Uh, so if, if you don't believe uh, you know, in, Christianity, if you don't believe in, in, you know, in that, where do you pull objective truth from? And, or actually, let me be, let me, let me change that a little bit. Sorry. Where, where would you pull objective morals from? Where, what would be the basis for that for you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think it, again, it can come from several places. Uh, my, my position again would be, would be somewhat, probably somewhat interesting. I would view something like, uh, the Christian belief of morals to be more of a subjective understanding of morality uh, anyway. And, and that's, that might seem kind of odd, but uh, you know, in, in, at least as far as my understanding goes, uh, it, it, it depends on your idea of what you think, how you think God hands down morals, but let's say, you know, you're a divine command uh, theorist. Uh, so whatever God says or pronounces as moral is, is good or is not good. So, you know, in my opinion, that would be morals filtering through the subject of God. So his own perspective and viewpoint is what makes something good or not. So in my opinion, that would be more of a subjective type morality. So an objective type morality, in my opinion, would be more of like uh, based on things like suffering or based on our own uh, intuitions of what is good. Like, I think that I think that you, it's pretty uncontroversial to say that the Holocaust was evil. And uh, I don't think that there are many cultures or many people who would uh, have, have a problem with recognizing that or just seeing that because it's simply self-evident. So that's where I would get my idea of objective morality from. It's something that's simply self-evident within uh, just the nature of being a human. Uh, now you can get into ethical questions, which of course, if you go from culture to culture and, you know, group to group, you're going to have little differences as far as, uh, you know, standards and things like that. And, and, you know, that's more the practice of, of, of ethics, but yeah, I mean, I would think that just to kind of circle back, I would, I would believe in a lot of objective things, even though I'm not a believer, uh, I would, I would say, yeah, objective morality, objective truth, all of that, all of that still exists. Yeah. Okay. So um, going off of the, the last definition, that was uh, of what you just said about objective truth. That was very helpful. Um, but it sounds uh, how you described it was something that was self-evident, essentially something that you can point at and identify as something that's just true just because it is right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like uh, physics, um, uh, gravity, you know, we, we, we don't, we stop at red lights because we don't want to get T-boned by another car going 60 miles per hour because physics is a, is a thing. And, and we know it's a thing because it's been identified in itself evident in and of itself. It's just something that is right. It's a, it's a natural law, um, a law of nature, uh, similar to gravity. I don't stand on the side of, you know, the, the Grand Canyon and jump off of it because I don't want to fall because gravity is a thing. Um, those are, 
those are presuppositions. Uh, we, 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 we hold to presuppositions and we hold to worldviews and we hold to things that are, that are true just because they're true on an everyday basis. And I'm saying this in part because, hey, I'm talking to you right now, but I'm also saying this for the audience. So I'm sorry if I'm saying something that, you know, that you're like, yeah, we've already talked about that or I already understand that. Um, so with that being said, we all, we all have presuppositions. Um, we all have a lens and a worldview that we, that we, that we look at life through the people typically who reject traditions and the people who typically reject the idea of presuppositions typically have more than they would feel comfortable with admitting. And that's something that I really like and respect about this conversation with you right now, Corey, is you're like, man, I, I, I do have a presupposition. I do believe in this objective truth. I do see it. Um, so with that being said, where, where does it stem from? Where does that come from, though? And from your worldview, where do objective truths come from? I understand you're saying that they're self-evident and you're saying that they're just true because they're true. But where'd they come from? Um, well, I mean, I guess I guess that I guess that that might lead to. Well, let me say this. I, I, I wouldn't believe that you know, there's, there's like a, a divine lawgiver or, uh, who's, who's passing down these, you know, infallible, unchangeable truths that he's created and sustained. And that's where we ultimately get it from. I don't believe in that. Uh, so, but I do believe in objective reality, objective truth, objective morals. I think that there are things that we can know even despite the things that we have to presuppose about the world. I th and, and I would just say, I don't think that we necessarily have to understand exactly where that came from. I think that that can be something that we uh, can still uh, claim based on our own uh, nature that's self-evident to us. So I would say, I don't think I have to, you know, I don't think I really have to completely understand the ultimate nature of reality to still ascertain some sort of objective truth from it, uh, at least to, to the best of our ability as humans and how we reason. Um, I, I, th I think that, I think that calling just our experience, uh, subjective and just saying, Oh, it's, it's all dependent upon how we feel and just what we think. I, I don't think that that's necessarily, an accurate ref reflection of reality. Um, so I would agree with you guys because you guys have, you guys, I would assume probably have a, a very strong sense of objective morality. You base that in God. I would agree with most of your same sense of objective morality, objective truth. We would just differ on where that ultimately comes from. And, you know, I would say, I'm not exactly sure the ultimate nature of reality or how we would get that. All I can know is, you know, my own experience and, listen to the experience of others and we can ascertain what is just self-evident to us. So it's, it's, you know, I can't, I can't really go beyond that because, you know, I can't posit another God who's going to, you know, uh, lay down objective truth in some sort of way that makes sense in an atheistic framework. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's, uh, that's something that we, we have to have to understand objective truth. Sure. Um, can I make an argument, though, <clears throat> and 
could I, could I argue to you that you cannot have any claim of objective truth without there being an objective lawgiver? Because you're saying that it doesn't, I don't know where it comes from and it's being determined what is objective truth based off of fallible subjective emotions and people and decisions. Therefore, if we don't know where these laws are coming from, that means they can't, we, how, how is it that we can determine if they're actually objectively true or not? Because there are people in the world, to your example earlier, that believe that the Holocaust was not wrong. So if there are people who believe objectively that the Holocaust was not wrong, and you're saying that you believe objectively that it is wrong, I mean, you can't just say because majority rules, there, there has to be some sort of objective outside measure or source as to where they're coming from or what your opinion is, is just that. It's just an opinion. It's not actually objective. You're, you're, you're borrowing from a different, you're borrowing from our worldview in saying that there is objective truth, but we have no idea where it comes from because if none of us have any idea where it's coming from, then how can we actually determine what is? Yeah, and I don't mean to cut off, but just to add to that, just to give some perspective of kind of what I was thinking as you were talking, and I, I would love for you to answer Travis' question, and my, mine I think goes hand in hand with his, like, it sounds a lot to me like you said, I believe in objective truth, and I get that objective truth from subjective sources, but I'm going to reject the notion that there's an objective truth giver. Um, so that's just, it, it's, it, it doesn't seem to add up to me, to me, if that makes sense, but yeah, no, I can, I can, I can see, I can see some of that. So, so let's say, I, I, I would say that, uh, well, let's see if I can illustrate it this way. I would say that, uh, gratuitous, uh, suffering is bad. Right. And we could, we could just rope the Holocaust in with that from the previous example, any sort of suffering that is gratuitous is bad. That's evil. Uh, I feel like that's a pretty non-controversial statement. Now, if we get into how to frame that, if, if I said, well, it's bad because most people think it's bad, that would be a subjective foundation for understanding that, right? Um, because what if there's a big group of people who say, well, no, I should be able to torture you. Uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I guess theoretically that would be true. Now that, that would not make it then good, so I guess the, the, I guess to maybe clarify a little bit, uh, the source for how you can get some of these objectives can be things like uh, our, uh, the pain and, pain and suffering. Is, is, is needless suffering bad? I think that that being self-evident, self-evidently true is enough to ground that in an objective truth um, because we're not relying on we're not relying on people's uh, just whether they say it's bad or not. I believe that it's self-evident that that suffering is bad. I don't. I'm I'm simply not persuaded that you have to have uh, an objective lawgiver to decree these things in order for us to consider them objective. Uh, I I just don't find that argument persuasive to me personally. Um, I, I don't think that you need much else to or anything higher than our own uh, understanding of what we consider good and evil um, 
in, in a general sense to, to ground these things. But how are you reconciling the differences in people's subjective worldviews? Because you're, you're, you're making claims of, you're making, you're making objective truth claims right now that needless suffering is bad. And there are people who disagree with you. There are, there are people who disagree with you, yet you're still holding to it. Therefore, how can we determine what is true? How do we determine which opinion? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to get us off the, off the rails here just, or just repeat myself, but I think that, sure, there are some people who may disagree with that, uh, but I think that it is self-evidently wrong. Uh, if you, if somebody says that needless suffering is good, I think that that's self-evidently wrong, uh, in itself that you don't need anything beyond that to ground it. Like that. I think there are some truths that are simply, we know based upon our nature, uh, or, or that have emerged through just how humans have developed over time. And now, of course, we have a lot of different presuppositions over, how these things started. I mean, I, I would assume that you guys uh, were probably young earth creationists as well. Uh, so we probably have different understandings of how, you know, some of these, some of these things came about. Now, I think that, yeah, you could probably say, you know, a, an interesting question here would be, is, is needless suffering, was that still evil when no life existed in the universe in, a, in an atheistic framework? You know, I think that's an interesting question. So let's say that there was no life on earth. Is it still objectively true that suffering is evil if no one was even there to perceive it? You know, I think that that's, that's probably a good question. I would, I would be tempted to say, yeah, that would still be wrong. Uh, maybe even before some of those, uh, the natures of human life and suffering was even a thing that existed. Um, so again, I would just ground it in, uh, just what is, what is self-evident to, uh, rational, rational thinkers. Yeah. This is, this is fascinating to me because I, I have talked to many people who would hold your opinion as to how should we find out what's true, but I don't know that I've met anybody and I'm sure there's other people out there who, who would, who would say that, who would say it's, it's self-evident. We need to determine that with our logic and reason. And even if, you know, even if this tribe somewhere across the world believes that cannibalism is a good thing, we, that's self-evident to us that it's not. And so, but, and I don't know that I've met anybody who would say that's objective truth. Um, and we can know objective truth through this process. Uh, so that that's really fascinating to me. I, and, and I, I mean, it sounds a little bit, you kind of alluded to this, Corey, that we, we may keep going back and forth a little bit on that. And I think that's okay, though, because this is a really important discussion to have. We started with, um, do yeah. we wish universalism were true? But this is the foundation of it. I mean, yeah, morality is so tied to that question. I, I kind yeah. of assumed that we would have to go there. Yeah, yeah we do, because yeah. because to, to talk about whether or not uh, everybody is going to be saved in the end within the Christian framework. We have to talk about how do we discover what's true? Because you, you gave an answer to that question earlier that said, when you were a Christian, you would have said, yes, I, I wish everybody were saved in the end. Um, because it's hard to reconcile a loving God with, with the fact that I believe that suffering is bad. Um, and so what you are saying essentially in that is you're saying, 
I'm having to reconcile what God has said to be true with what I believe should be true, right? And so then you you have to take that to the conversation of how do we determine what's true? Um, and how do we, de- not only how do we determine what's true, and these two things go hand in hand, but how do we determine what's good? Um, because it should not satisf- satisfy a Christian, in my opinion, and this is going to kind of bring us back to our question. I don't, we can go so many ways with this, but it should not satisfy a Christian, in my opinion, to say, well, I kind of wish everybody were saved, but God says they're not. So I just have to deal with that. Um, that's not okay. And so I would, I would answer and, and, uh, Travis and I talked briefly about this before. I believe he would too. I would answer, no, I don't wish that Christian universalism were true because, because I, Yes, it is a good desire to want people to be saved. So this is going to kind of sound like a contradiction, but I hope I'll explain myself well. I would say that I don't wish Christian universalism were true because God has told me that it's not true and God is loving, but he's also just, and I want God's love and his justice to prevail. Um, and that, and I have to bring my definition of what is just and good in line with his. And this is what he has told us is not only true, but what is good. And I want to love what God says is good. And so if God says it is it is good that justice, his, his justice prevails in pouring out his wrath on sinners, um, then as difficult as that is to grasp and as hard as that is to, to think about, I'm not saying it's a good thing to think about. I'm just saying it. I have to say, then I'm going to, I'm going to wish what God has decreed to be true, to be true. Um, and at the same time, I do think a Christian can say, but I don't want anybody to have to endure that suffering. I, I want people to, to, to come to Christ through the way that he's provided and repentance and faith in him. Um, but I, but I will not personally go the route of saying, yeah, but I, I wish that God would just save everybody um, because he he's laid out for us that the the way to salvation is not just in the end, everybody's going to believe he's laid out for us the truth that not everybody will be. Um, not everybody will come to repentance and faith in Christ. And so um, it's kind of a long answer, but I would say to kind of tie in our discussion, what we've been having to this is to say, there's an objective truth, I believe, in what God has revealed to us in his word um, and and it is that there are those who will go to eternal life because they've repented and placed their faith in Christ. And there are those who will go to eternal judgment and condemnation because they have not repented from their sin and they are receiving the, the due just penalty for their sins that I deserved as well. Um, I'm not better than them, but I've been, and this can go a lot of ways too. I've been, I've been redeemed by Christ and I celebrate that. And now I want everybody as well to come with me on that but it won't make me make the jump of saying, I, w- I wish everybody was, I, I wish it were true that everybody's going to be saved in the end. Cause God said, it's not true. And I want to cling to what he has said is true. Not what I want to be true. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm, um, I'm curious, like, I, I guess we, have we even defined, I guess what Christian universalism is so, so far. I don't, I don't know if we, we've even nope. said that. Um, so let's say just a quick definition of Christian universalism would be, uh, it's the idea that God will ultimately redeem and save everyone so that, uh, or at least most people, there are lots of different flavors of universalism. Uh, but what universalism isn't is Christian universalism does not say that there are many roads that lead to God. Right. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't say, oh yeah, you can have Jesus or you could have Muhammad or your good works. It doesn't claim that 
it says, no, Jesus is the only way. <laughs> it says you still need to have Jesus uh, to get to heaven, just that ultimately God is one who uh, redeems his, uh, his children whom he loves and whom, he, and whom he wills all to save. So that's the basic idea. So I guess going off kind of what, what you just said, what do you think the problem is with uh, uh, maligning the justice of God with a, uh, a universal idea of salvation? Like, what does that, what does that do to the character of God's justice in your opinion? So um, there's a couple thoughts I have on that. And I don't mean to sound dismissive. Uh, it's really not, but this is really how I would answer that first. God has told us that there are, there are those who will go to eternal condemnation and punishment in his, in his word. Um, now, I know some people disagree that that's what the Bible actually says, but it, to me, it's very, very clear. And so it maligns God's character because he, God would be a liar if there are some who do not end up in eternal condemnation. Um, it maligns his justice because, um, because again, he, has, he defines what justice is. Um, we want to say that justice is, okay, there are some who, you know, I get that they didn't repent in this life. And some Christian universalists would teach that in when, you know, sometime in the future, and we don't know how long it's going to take for some people, but sometime in the future, God's love will win them over. Um, that there are some who reject him now, but eventually his love is going to win them over and they are then going to repent and turn to him. Again, it goes back to, that's not the picture that the Bible gives us. Um, and, and so I can't, I can't say, well, I want this to be true. And I can, I can make this fit within the framework of salvation um, because it's still, it still is they're being saved through Christ. But the problem is God has not told us that's how it's going to take place. Um, and God has said that um, in his word uh, that uh, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. And so at, it is at that point that everyone who has not repented and turned to Christ is being judged for their sin, that he has put a time limit on when, when there's going to be this point that people can no longer repent from their sin. Um, and so it would malign God's character because it would make him a liar. Um, and it would malign his justice because he, he's not pouring out his wrath on sinners. He's continuing, he's continuing to just let them figure it out, even if it takes an eternity. And, and I, would, I would take issue with that because it's not the picture that we see in Scripture. Travis, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, that question or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to beat the proverbial dead horse because, you know, keto would get involved, but the, um, the, the issue and the question of how do we determine what is objective truth? Um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's continually going back to this. Um, my, I, I presuppose that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Um, that's the most consistent worldview that, um, I have seen and that I have studied and that has been found as faithful and trustworthy over the, uh, many years. So with the word of God, with that being my presupposition, um, that means that the objective lawgiver is God almighty who provides objective truths through his creation and through his general revelation and even through his specific special revelation 
and we have been provided with the full counsel and revelation of God through his word, the Bible. Therefore, I hold to this idea that every single word within the Bible is true and is inerrant and is without error and is perfect and it's from God himself. So if any of those words, if any of those truths within the scriptures were to be found as false or as God not actually saying or meaning what it is that he said, such as eternal damnation, eternal judgment in hell, if that is not what he actually meant, um, then to Kenny's point, then God would be found as a liar. So we have to determine what is truth to even get to this question because the Bible is explicitly clear in eternal damnation and apart from some extremely uncomfortable gymnastics, you can't get around the fact that eternal judgment is present in the scriptures from both the Old and New Testament's perspective. From everywhere from church history, it being identified and upheld to the original languages just completely exonerating the doctrine um, as true. So we have to be able to determine what is truth. And from our perspective, it's the word of God. Therefore, um, hell is an eternal place of punishment for those who reject Christ and trample underfoot his name in the gospel. So I would be curious, Corey, to get your thoughts on this because you're uh, tell me if I'm right in, in saying that it sounded like earlier you said, you know, the, there's a part of you that is maybe beginning to be persuaded that Christian universalism is true. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I find it, I find it a, a, a probably a more plausible version of, of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So my challenge on that, and this is something that I've said to somebody else before is I don't, and maybe you have an answer for this. I don't know how you can get around the fact that you are, you are taking parts of the Bible and what's been revealed about God that, that you want to believe and that you like and rejecting the parts that you don't want to believe. And so at that point, you're, you're creating your own version of the Christian God. Um, and so, and that yeah. again, takes kind us a, back to kind of a buffet style Christian right. God. Yeah. yeah. That I, it's hard for me to get around that because yeah. at some point, and I've talked to other people who, who hold to Christian universalism at some point, there are certain scriptures that every person I've ever talked to holds to this rejects. And to Travis point earlier, if objective truth is found in the word of God, um, then you can't, it is people, people sometimes look at us and say, Oh, you just believe the Bible is a house of cards. You pull one part out and the whole thing falls apart. What a weak faith. And I'm saying, yes, I do believe it is that because at what, at what point do you, do you and I determine what's true in the Bible and what's not? If, if we believe it came from God, it was inspired by God. How can we then say, God, I think you inspired this, but you didn't inspire this. And so uh, that I'm just bringing that question back to you. Like, how can you how can how do you reconcile that 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 you're basically piecing together buffet style who God is within Christian universalism? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question, and I I I think that it's definitely worth looking into. And I I really respect your answer, what you said about you know kind of the, when I asked you about 
what does universalism do to the justice of God? You said, well, in God's word, it says that that's not true. So if I were to believe something that his own scriptures tell us is not true, then that maligns his, his character right there. Cause God's yeah. not a liar. I mean, that, that totally makes sense. Um, I mean, I guess just to kind of steel man the idea of Christian universalism a little more, which again is interesting for me because it's not necessarily a position that, I've, that I really hold. Uh, but from what I understand, Christian universalists, they don't reject portions of the scripture. They would just interpret these things differently. Um, I guess, I guess a, a good example is there's a, and again, this is where my, uh, my superpower of, or my, my super skill of having the language interpretation would come in handy. But, uh, there's, there's a Greek word that shows up often in the new Testament, uh, when it's talking about, uh, eternal hell or eternal damnation. And it's the word, uh, it's the word ion, A-I-O-N. Um, so I think in the King James version that was translated as eternal, uh, but listening to scholars like David Bentley Hart, uh, Thomas Talbot, when they talk about that, that word, uh, from, from my understanding, they would say that that's that word ion means more of an, an age. It's where we get our word eon from. It's like it's it's a time period, not necessarily a time duration. So they wouldn't Christian universalists would not reject any of those scriptures about eternal damnation. And as far as what I've read, some of them even have pictures of hell that are maybe even more intense than what a lot of current modern day Christians have about, oh, it's just a separation from God or it's just. God removing his presence from unbelievers. No, from, from what I understand, a lot of universalists believe that it is, it is a terrible place that you do not want to go to. <laughs> uh, they just believe that it's, it is a, it is a time period for the unbelievers to go to that will essentially be like a purification of their lives to where they will, will ultimately be redeemed to their father. So again, from what I understand, they don't, they don't reject those scriptures um, now, they certainly do seem to accentuate some scriptures over others, but uh, it, almost every Christian does this. I mean, I, I'm sure we've all talked to our fair share of Calvinists and Arminianists, Ar Arminianists and we can see <laughs> everybody has their clobber verses, right? The, the ones that we like to pull out and uh, kind of point to and be like, oh, look, the, the scripture says this, and then we kind of forget to bring those other verses up or we just don't accentuate them enough. Um, you know, a Christian universalist would go to something like first uh, Corinthians 15, 22 uh, for as an Adam, uh, all will die, but in, uh, but also in Christ, all will be made alive. Uh, we'll go to something like first uh, Timothy four 10 uh, says, because we've put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people uh, and especially of those who believe. Uh, so they would point to verses like that. that seem to say, well, God is a loving God. He's, he's, he's going to save everyone, but especially the people who believe in him. Um, so again, I, I think I, I'm not, I'm not aware of uh, many Christian universalists who have a low interpretation of scripture. Uh, I think, I think many of them do have a pretty, put a lot of value in stock into trying to rightly divide the scriptures and understand them in, in the ways that they were intended and, I mean, even if you look at church history, uh, you can look at you can look at uh, guys like Origen. You can look at guys like Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, even all through probably the early five or six hundreds, uh, it wasn't an uncommon view to hold to a universalist interpretation. Um, 
So I think that there's, and it definitely kicked off probably more in the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. It, it's very rare to find in Western Christianity uh, these days. Uh, but I think that there's still a tradition of believers who interpreted the scriptures this way. And especially with a lot of the early church fathers as well, too, I think that it's 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 not necessarily a fair criticism to say that these people just don't look at the Bible or don't value certain scriptures. Um, I think that again, I think that they have a, a pretty high view of scripture. That's a that's a fair challenge. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Travis. I I talked a lot earlier. You go ahead. No, you're good. You're good. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Um, yeah. So what we see quite often, Corey, throughout church history is a particular person, typically, it's starting with, and that moving to a group of people who has um, some, some sort of truth within the Bible that makes them feel very uncomfortable, such as eternal damnation in this particular context. And they're smart enough to usurp the scriptures with their own uh, manipulative worldview of the text. And they're smart enough from a grammatical standpoint, even to perform um, grammatical gymnastics as to what I was saying earlier with the text. So for example, I don't, I, I think what you meant by, uh, by Ion is, is Ionius and it's, a, it's an AI. And it sounds like that because like, like, like our word, our American word for aisle, like go down aisle. Hey, like, in, yeah. Yeah. So Ion has a nice broad range of uh, semantical meanings. So it has a semantical domain of a few different interpretations uh, such as as long ago and it's a long period of time, which is something that you're talking about, like an age, um, a period of time without beginning or end, something that's eternal or something that is unending duration without end. Um, and there was a, a Greek idiom that was commonly used in the text, which was a phrase that was called into Ionius. Uh, it was a prepositional phrase, the preposition being the, the into and then into forever. Um, and it was an idiomatic phrase back in the first century, which was confirmed by extra biblical literature as well as a, a very slam dunk case and interpretation of eternity of without end. It's into eternity. It's forever. It's without duration or without end. Um, this is an exegetical fallacy that a lot of people um, fall into when trying to usurp their opinion over the authority of the scriptures by saying that, well, hey, there's a difference. There's a different semantic domain. There's a different definition of this word. And that fits my interpretative framework. Therefore, that's what this text must mean. Um, that, that, that's a really dangerous ground to be in when you have the extremely clear and simple reading of the text proven through other extra biblical literatures. And if you just look at the evidences within the text itself, it's consistent with the definition of eternity. Um, that's dangerous grounds, brother. 
Yeah, I, I, th- I think that uh, I, I think I think that what you said about I guess the definition of of words is is a good is a good bridge uh, to maybe getting a little further into this. So, so one of the confusions I guess that many people who who find the idea of eternal hell uh, as a difficult doctrine is. Uh, we think, and I don't want to say this carefully. I don't want to be disrespectful. Uh, I want to be. I want to be clear about the problem here, but I, but I want to articulate it in a way that's respectful. Um, so Christians think of God as a perfectly loving, perfectly powerful God. Like we we think of. I mean, the Bible defines God as love. God is a God of loving kindness. God is a God of of mercy. So the way that we define the word love, right? Just think of all the ways that you, you use that word. I mean, you probably use it in a lot of different ways. You probably say that, you know, you love your parents and you also love tacos, you know, I mean, it, it could mean a lot I of do love things. tacos. Yeah. Who doesn't? Right. Right. Uh, so, so we use that word in a lot of different contexts, but would it, would it make sense to say that we are, we love that, which we, uh, destroy or, or torture forever is there any sort of human's understanding of that word that that's where that definition of love still makes sense and and i think that the universalists would say well you're saying that god is love but your definition that god is love does not mean love how we at all ever use it if we're talking about eternal torture because that's something that's so far beyond what should be considered a common grace understanding of the word love that everyone should be able to just kind of intuitively understand and know. So like what, how would, how would you reconcile, I guess, that definition of God being a God of perfect love, but also, also a God who, you know, potentially tortures, you know, millions or billions of people for eternity. So uh, it goes back to who, who, who defines what love is. And you're saying, you know, that, that doesn't fit with the definition of love that would be commonly held among people, you know, ever. Um, and I would, there's a, there's a, so there's a few things that play into this. Um, God within our, within our framework, our worldview, the way that we see the scriptures in Christianity, we would say God determines what love is. And if God is love, then we find out what love is by knowing who God is. And so we, we can't say, uh, then we as believers in God can't say, well, God, you're not loving when you pour out your wrath on sinners. Um, that, 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 that must be, that must be, that must not be true because you're love. And what we're doing then is we're saying the way that I view love doesn't match up with this. Um, and, uh, once again, we're pulling truth from within ourselves, not from what's been revealed by God himself. Um, and this is another reason why I, to me, a Christian universalist is an oxymoron because you can't, and I don't mean that disrespectfully or in, in such a derogatory way, but you, you can't really believe what the scripture puts forth when it comes to the nature of God, that God is love, that God is justice, that he defines what those things mean. Uh, you can't, you can't believe in the nature of God and saying that God, God's not just a higher being than us. He's, he's other than us. He's holy. He's completely different than us. And so while I can't understand the concept of, of truly loving somebody that 
that I want to pour out justice on. Um, God, God is God is other than us. Um, and also, I think we have to. There's so many things that we have to consider, even about. What does it mean that God loves the world? What does it mean that God loves sinners? What, is it, what does it mean that God is love and yet he is just at the same time? And the answer to all those questions has to be, what has God said about it? What, what has he said? And so if I continually come to God and he tells me, this is what it means that I love the world and this is what it means that I'm perfectly just, and I go, well, God, that doesn't line up with what I think these things mean then we're, we're, we're trying to usurp our own authority here and we're not interpreting what the word of God has actually said. Um, and, and so, uh, once again, and it seems like a cop-out answer. It seems like a a broken record maybe, but I'm always going to go back to, I don't get to define this. I don't, I don't get to decide what is true here. I don't get to even define what love is. Um, so if, so if my idea of love can't be reconciled, with what God is doing and pouring out his wrath on sinners who, who he says deserves that, then I've got to change my definition of, of love. I've got to change my definition of justice. Cause it doesn't line up with, with God's. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. I think, I think probably some of the tension for some people there is they would, they would look at that. They would look at the definition of God's love in that instance. And they would look at their own sort of, inclinations for how they love their family or how they would treat those that they love. And they would look at these two side by side and they would say, well, my version of love seems more, seems like a higher standard than God's version of love. So it it creates kind of a, why, why do, why do my standards of love and forgiveness seem to be higher than God's on this, on this one point? And again, I say, I'm not necessarily saying that's my position. I'm saying that that's what some people struggle with when they look at these ideas of trying right. to reconcile uh, an, an, an eternal place of suffering for, uh, for the beings that, you know, the father created, that's, that's kind of how they would think through some of this. Right. And, and I'm, I understand what you're saying, that you're saying that this is not exactly your position. And I, and I hear that and I appreciate that. And that's why I'm going to say what I'm going to say um, anecdotally here going off of different people's feelings and intuitions and what they determine to be love in their own worldview. Uh, Previous to this, um, I was uh, in law enforcement and I was a sex crimes detective. And those people that you deal with, um, particularly the pedophiles, have an extremely um, impassioned and real sense from their worldview of what love is. And what they determine to be justifiable love and good love and, and their expressions of love, which we have deemed to be an abomination, um, actually, from their perspective, is good. And it is a correct manifestation of love. Um, I don't see how we can use one of the most... Uh, volatile words that our society has hijacked um, dating back to the Roman culture with the romanticized idea of love rather than stripping it from the context of the Bible as some sort of objective concrete truth that's displayed through action. That's what love is. Um, And it's demonstrable through 
the scriptures because love actually has a source, right? Love being God himself. And if you don't hold to some sort of objective truth, which from your worldview, you're saying I do, but your actions of how you get to that truth is speaking louder than your actual words, because you're saying, I believe in objective truth that's determined through subjective lenses. Um, that means we're living in this world of mishmash potatoes where none of us can actually determine what is true. So from my worldview, when we're harking on this definition of love, I don't care what people have to say when they say my definition of love is outside and different from what God's is. Well, I understand that they, as the higher critic, has placed themselves as the authority over the scriptures. And they're the ones now who is determining what is true and what is not true. And they are now placing God on trial, saying that I know more than you because they're the God of their own world. But if there is an objective truth, that has to have a source from something. And if our presupposition is correct, that objective truth stems from God and that the truth of the scriptures are real, then God is true. And what his word says stands. And I meant to make and this it, point earlier to Corey, kind of to a question that you asked um, or a challenge that you gave when I said earlier that, you know, Christian universalists just reject the scriptures. Um, I have met some that do, they piece the scriptures together, but there are some, I agree. There are many that are, are claiming to hold to a high view of God's word and claiming I'm just interpreting what I believe the Bible actually says. And to what Travis point is, you know, I don't think many of them believe themselves to be usurping authority over God and trying to make him into what they want to be. They would claim that they are simply just reading the scriptures. Um, it is my, it is my view as I read the scriptures that it is an impossibility to, to faithfully, accurately, honestly read the scriptures and come to a conclusion of Christian universalism. Um, it's, and this is, this is us sharing, you know, our answer to this question earlier, like, I understand people will disagree with me. You probably disagree with me, but I don't, I don't see how it's possible to accurately, honestly read the scriptures and come to that conclusion. And so when I say they're, they're, they're piecing the scriptures together, um, whether, whether they realize they're doing it or not, I believe that's what they're doing. They're taking this one word and saying, well, in some contexts it can mean this. And so therefore the entirety of the scriptures must be saying that hell is not eternal. Um, when there's not just one word that refers to hell is eternal, there are many phrases and words that are used to continually, uh, give us this truth. Um, and it's, it's not just, I don't want to just proof text it. I want to go back to the nature of God, who he is, who he's defined himself to be, and then allow the scriptures um, to speak um, based on, based on, you know, this is coming from God and his nature. And so I want to know what he has said. I don't want to make this fit into my framework. Um, so, sorry, I thought that was important to, to throw in there earlier. And I just, I, I missed my chance, but. Yeah. I mean, that, man, there's 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 a million different tangents here, uh, and just just to kind of steel man the, that idea even further about kind of what you said about the eternal nature of hell. There are some universalists from what I've read who would who would still say, well, yeah, hell will be eternal, but that the scriptures don't say that everyone who is in hell will stay in there forever, and that no one will ultimately be redeemed out. So that theoretically, you could have a hell that's eternal. Uh, with with no people there uh that's one answer that i've 
that I've heard to that idea. Um, but, but again, to go back to the idea of love, um, I think a lot of universalists and just a lot of people, myself in general, uh, would, would find, would, would find that a worldview that says that God is, uh, omnibenevolent, uh, perfectly loving, the definition of love. And then to that God would then torture, uh, the creation that he loves for forever, that that's just an incoherent idea. So like, if you believe that God has given us an understanding, Christians and non-Christians alike, alike, just through just general revelation that he's given us to where we can understand definitions like what love means to where we can still see that and recognize it. Uh, to say that that is the same God that tortures for forever. It's just, it, it's like a, it's, it's like you're trying to square a circle. It's like an idea that is just logically incoherent. So I think a lot of the things that I hear in response to this are, well, it's just kind of a mystery. God's ways are not your ways. You know, who, who are you to think that, that you could understand love better than how God understands it? You know, who are you to challenge God on ideas about love uh, and about what is ultimately just? And I think that, you know, that's certainly a way to answer that question, but it seems like you could answer any kind of internal problem within Christianity with that, with that answer. Uh, but that's not ultimately going to get you any closer to the truth. You could, you could wave away any kind of, you know, problem in your faith or just kind of difficulty in the text with saying, oh, ultimately this is you know, we, we weren't meant to understand all of God's ways with this because he's so above us. You know, how can, how can we, how can we pretend like we are on the same wavelength as understanding him? But I think that, I think that in a Christian worldview, we should expect to be able to understand these things. And we should expect to be able to have a definition of love that we can understand and paint on God that matches what we think of as love. And I think that when you consider the idea of eternal conscious torment. To me personally, that's an incoherent idea. So something like annihilationism would be closer to solving that issue. Um, but then something like Christian universalism, you know, in, in, in many, in many views would be, uh, the redeeming end of the story that God has laid throughout the Bible. So again, it's this going back to the Bible as a coherent story that paints this picture of God's redeeming love that it's ultimately fulfilled in the, in the, in the redemption of, uh, of, of every soul. So uh, in my view, that seems to keep the idea of love intact. Uh, it seems to keep a high view of scripture uh, because again, they would interpret scripture in a way that uh, they think is more uh is more uh, honest to the original author's intent. Uh, you know, again, this is, this is kind of a, kind of a weird idea for many in evangelicalism. Like I was telling Kenny before uh, we got on, like, this is something I would have just waved my hand away at uh, when I was a Christian. I, I wouldn't even have considered this uh, much less annihilationism, you know? Uh, but I, I guess now when I can kind of think about these things and ask questions that maybe I would have been a little more afraid to ask before, uh, like even challenging the idea of, well, what does it mean if God is love, if he's going to, you know, do this to part of his creation? You know, that's a question I would have been very uncomfortable even asking. 
when I was a Christian, which is why I'm trying to be comfortable now, even or trying to be careful now, even talking about it. Um, so yeah, I think that again, that this is generally how universalists think through it. They would have that high view of scripture. They would have a high view of love. Yeah. Um, if I could speak directly into, uh, probably one of the, one of the most foundational issues of what we're talking about here is hermeneutics and how do we interpret the Bible and you bringing up the interp- the, the interesting phrase, authorial intent, um, you can't claim authorial intent um, while performing exegetical fallacies. And I, and what I want to point that out is the arguments that you've made thus far concerning eternity uh, is an exegetical fallacy of uh, looking at the semantic domain incorrectly. Uh, there's another argument that was posed that eternal just means that hell is eternal, but it doesn't mean that there will be people in there that is a that's a that's a distortion of the text that I can't even wrap my brain around. It's called it's an argument from silence, which is another fallacy that that you can just because pedophilia is not in the Bible, it doesn't make it okay. You can't make an argument from silence. Um, there the the context of the scriptures are explicitly clear um, on that subject. So when you're looking at hermeneutics and how to interpret the text if you actually want to interpret it faithfully through its historical and grammatical lens, then there are metrics and there's a science behind that where you can objectively apply those tools to the text. But if you have a preconceived notion as to what you already have determined, what the Bible should mean, meaning, well, hell is just uh, eternal uh what what the uh, what's the word that you use i'm sorry you used to, other than torment uh, you torture, use torture. Yeah. Yeah. torture um uh that is a that, that that's a perversion of god's justice that, that that term saying that god depending on how you define torture um it, it shows a lack of understanding of what justice is because i have a son myself and I've seen some really heinous crimes. And if my son, who I love dearly, who I love more than my own life, grew up to become a serial rapist of children, I would celebrate the fact that he gets caught and I would celebrate him going to jail while also experiencing heartbreak and sorrow over my son going to jail. This is a human emotion that I can relate to with the celebration of justice, even for the rest of his life, even him being put to death, because that's what he deserves for doing such a wicked thing. If I can relate in my limited, finite mind to this idea of justice being served, then I don't understand how we can not understand God taking sinners, enemies that hate him, that have broken his law and who are dead in their nature, who are followers of Satan himself, how we can't wrap our mind around the idea of eternal judgment, apart from the fact that you don't think that you're as bad as you actually are, apart from a lack of understanding of total depravity, 
and apart from an understanding that we have all been born into this sin nature and we are wicked followers of the main adversary, the devil himself, and that if left to our own devices, we would continue to spiral down into more and more corruption until we were just the most wicked scum of the earth. But the grace of God entered into existence through the person of Jesus Christ, that while at the proper time, Christ died for sinners. And he, and he had a selected group of people in mind since before the foundations of the world so that he could showcase his grace on them and through himself by his substitutionary death on the cross. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even though we're so wicked and even though we all deserve to go to hell, that there would be a holy and kind and merciful God who would die and take the place of his people so that they could have grace and that he would defeat death, raise from the grave and go back up to heaven. Um, it's, it's all of these beautiful pictures of the gospel and what he's offered us is what gives us a framework to understand. So, so, so we can understand and we can relate to what God's doing and we can even celebrate justice and we can know for a fact what it says when we correctly and faithfully interpret the Bible through a grammatical, historical, hermeneutical process. But if we disregard that and we apply whatever kind of metrics we want to interpret the Bible, and if we perform any kind of exegetical fallacy that we want just to get our desired outcome, that's a perversion. And we can't do that. And that's, that's just, that's an unfaithful, manipulative distortion of the text. Yeah, like I, I would agree if you're, if you're going through the Bible, trying to pick and choose the parts that you like to create your preferred theology or what you would want to happen, I, I don't think you're going to be close to the truth if, if you're doing that. I don't, I don't think that that's, that's going to have any bearing on what the ultimate truth is because you're just, you're just picking what you want. Uh, and, and I'm not sure, you know, I can't necessarily speak from all universalists because I'm, I'm, I, I don't believe this way, but I don't think that most <clears throat> see themselves doing that. And I think that a lot of the, a lot of the ideas that you said about justice, they would fully sign on to, you know, like they would say, well, yes, God has to, God is also the God of love, but he's also the God of justice. He has to enact his perfect justice on uh, the people who have rejected him or, or the people who don't believe in him or who aren't covered by the blood of Christ. You know, he, 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 he must be a just God. So there must be punishment. They would just disagree on uh, the severity of the crime uh, matching up with the severity of the punishment. And I guess I want to get y'all's thoughts on this because I can remember what I used to think through this. So what is it about, uh, let's just say besides the text, which, which, which may be hard here, uh, what is it about eternal punishment, just that idea of eternal punishment that to you seems like it is a, it is a just form of punishment based on a finite sin? Well, I, so I wouldn't define our sins as finite. Um, okay. 
they are because they are against a an infinite God. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so our sins are not finite. I mean, to us, they may seem that way, but it goes back to and Travis kind of posed this earlier. It goes back to the question of what does it mean that we're sinners? Um, you know, we don't we don't uh, deserve. I don't. I think sometimes Christians paint this picture that you know, well. If you just, if you went your whole life and the only thing you ever did was you told this little white lie, then you're still going to deserve eternal punishment for that. Um, first of all, yes, because that's an infinite sin. Um, but second of all, that's actually not the full picture that, that the scripture paints for us. The scripture tells us that we are sinners by nature, that we are born into sin, um, that Adam, as our representative, sinned and fell, and now all those who are in Adam receive death, just as Adam was promised to receive death. And now, because of Christ, those who are in Christ and have Christ as their head, um, they, they receive life um, because, because that's who we are now in. We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ because we've repented and placed our faith in Christ. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's it's important that we, yes, we have to go back and say the scripture tells us that this is just, so we have to believe this is just, but we also have to, I don't just want to dismiss that as like, okay, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I, I want to look at the whole picture of what the Bible says here. The Bible doesn't just say, well, we all deserve hell, so let's just deal with it. The Bible explains to us why we deserve hell. So we, we don't just need to accept the truth that God's just and he's chosen to pour out his justice this way. We need to also accept all the truths that tell us why he, why he pours out his justice this way. Um, and then let us also, this is another point I wanted to bring up, let's ask the question, Okay, we keep we keep harping on, well, God, how can a loving God send people to hell? How does God define his love toward people? Um, and it, it goes back to the, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. And, and really, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we go, amen, God loves. And so he gave us a way of salvation. Why doesn't he give that to everybody? Um, you have to read on in the passage. Um, uh, that, that passage continues in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works for evil. Um, and then even later on in that passage, very definitively, we're told this, John 3, uh, John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Um, there's that idea again, that those who believe in the son have eternal life. Those who do not believe will never see life. Um, they, the wrath of God will remain on them. Um, and so that's in the context of, of one of the most famous verses where we love to talk about God's love for the world. Well, this is how he's loved the world. He's offered us the opportunity to, to be received into his kingdom, to have a relationship with him, to be redeemed from our sin except because we're sinners, we love the darkness rather than the light. And we have continued to rebel and God is going to pour out his wrath on those who rebel. And he's, and he's laid out for us how he's going to do that. And, and for us to then say, but God, you said you were loving. And he goes, yes, yes, I am. And I have offered the way of salvation I, at the cost of my own life. I've offered the way of salvation. And yet 
sinners will continue to choose their evil. Sinners will continue to reject God. And he is perfectly just in pouring out eternal wrath on them because he's an eternal God who has been sinned against in an infinite way, um, not just by our actions, but by our very nature um, as, as sinners. Um, and so it's the whole picture here. It's not just, well, you know, uh, they had a chance here on earth, but they rejected it. But really, I mean, eternity for a few things that they did wrong. Um, the question is not that. The question is what's even the nature of sin versus the nature of God. Um, and so you and, and this is, again, why I would say that Christian universalists are picking scripture because they're rejecting some of that. They're rejecting the teachings They're They would not say they are. I believe in fit to be fair. They would say this is how they interpret the sure. Bible. Yeah. But the, but to me, the Bible's so clear on these things that the only the only possible conclusion is that they have chosen the parts of the Bible they like, and they've explained away the parts of the Bible that they don't like, and they use the verses that they like to explain the verses that they don't like instead of saying, what does the Bible actually say as a whole here? Um, and so I struggle with that. I, I struggle more with the Christian universalists than the atheists because um, – you know, the atheist is at least, it, again, not all atheists are the same, but they're at least rejecting all of this. And the Christian universalist is saying, well, I like some of it, but not others. So I'm going to try to find a way to explain this. Yeah, I was, I was kind of wondering if you would, <clears throat> if you would kind of say some of the same things that, that I used to think uh, about, uh, I guess, explaining the eternal nature of hell, because yeah. that was also how I used to think through it. I mean, I can even remember, we probably both heard this at camp when we work together. Uh, we would even hear this in gospel presentations. We would hear something like, uh, if you've sinned against an eternal God, then that means that you will then, uh, that constitutes eternal punishment. Your finite sins against a infinite being renders infinite punishment. Um, I'm not sure that idea is taught anywhere in scripture explicitly. I don't, I, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that that is somewhat of an argument from silence because I don't think scripture ever lays out that reasoning. I don't think scripture anywhere says something like because of your finite sins against an eternal being, then that means that you must face eternal punishment. Um, to, to, to my understanding, that that reasoning seems a bit ridiculous. But again, I, I say this as somebody who used to believe that. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to... It, sure. it, ridiculous, maybe too strong of a word. It's it seems incoherent to me to to think that. Uh, let, let's go back to the example of let's say we have a sex offender, let's say a serial rapist and murderer who, you know, just spends a lifetime committing awful crimes, and then they are, let's say they're put to death, and and that's justice. Uh, most of society would say, okay, yeah, you you deserve that. That's that's a good thing that you face justice. Now let's let's stretch that out a little bit and let's 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 paint that onto the picture of hell and let's say that uh, instead of being put to death they were tortured in fire for a hundred years and be like wow that's pretty serious but you'd probably have some people who may sign on to that uh, okay now change that to a thousand years uh, okay uh, now keep ramping that up to a billion years of fire and suffering for a lifetime of crimes then it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, now, if we're looking in the context of eternal hell and punishment and the ideas of a just God, a, a billion years of torture isn't even a small fraction of, of what, uh, of, of what hell, an eternal idea of hell would be. So I, I think to compare, uh, 
uh, I guess that example of like just a terrible human, you know, we, every conversation in the philosophy of religion always goes back to Hitler. You know, you could paint Hitler on this as well. Uh, there, there's a, to many people, there's a point to where that type of punishment would not be just, but in fact, it would be the opposite. It, it would be unjust. It would be unjust to punish this person for a finite crime. And so I think from, from the way that Christian universalists would understand, they would say, uh, if my, understand, or my understanding of God would be a God who is perfectly just and perfectly loving, uh, so they're not going, God is not going to punish his creation in a way that ultimately becomes unjust, because that doesn't mesh with the idea that God has presented himself through scripture. So there must be a different interpretation or a different understanding rather than eternal punishment and eternal hell. So I, th I think that's kind of how they would, some of the reasoning for some of these things would be as far as just like comparing, does the punishment fit the crime? I, th I think that that's something that probably not enough Christians think about, like how sev severe hell actually is. Um, I, I mean, I know I definitely didn't think about it enough when I was a Christian. Uh, so, and whatever your implications that you take away from that is, oh, if hell is this severe place, then why am I wasting my life not evangelizing and not doing everything I can for, for Christ? Uh, you know, it can influence a lot of Christians to think that way, but it also influences some Christians to look a little closer at the scripture and say, well, does my understanding of God actually make sense? Okay. Does, does the Bible use the phrase uh, eternal judgment or um, unquenchable fire or anything like that? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, Re Revelation paints some pretty, some pretty intense pictures of, of, of judgment. Of course, in Matthew, we have weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have all sorts of pictures of just awful, awful torment. Uh, and eternal is used often in those, in those verses. Yes. Okay, so can you rephrase so that I can, I want to make sure I understand what you said earlier about the Bible not saying what? Yeah, well, ju just the idea of a finite sin, uh, the, the crime for a finite sin against an infinite God means that uh, infinite punishment is due. Uh, th th that, that reasoning, I'm not sure, is found in Scripture. I think that's something that's just kind of, implied because like I said, this is, I've heard this presented in gospel presentations and I think it's presented that way because for people who aren't Christians or haven't heard the gospel before all of a sudden hearing, Oh, wait a minute, God's going to throw me in hell. Like that's kind of a shocking thing for some people to, to hear for the first time. So I think that some people, when they present the gospel, they'll go ahead and just put that disclaimer there to try to explain it saying, Hey, if you if you've sinned against a perfect infinite God, then that means your punishment is due for eternity. Uh, so that's the idea that I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not sure is explicitly reasoned in scripture. I think that's just something that we, that we get to, to try to um, try to try to make this idea uh, maybe a little bit easier to understand and just kind of congruent a little, a little easier. Right. So the wages of sin is death and in every context that we get about hell it's this unquenchable eternal fire and those who break god's law will go to this place um if you're making a claim that 
that uh, it's it's either not eternal or um, the idea that a sin does not justify eternal death in the Bible, the burden of proof is going to be on you because the plain reading of the text is, is very clear that those who are not people of God will be sent to eternal judgment. Sure. But I guess, I guess I'm talking about more of the reasoning of why a finite sin renders eternal punishment, not necessarily, uh, if, if the text seems to indicate that or not. So I'm, I'm saying if, if we, so yeah. So, so to be example, if, if we can be gracious enough and forgiving enough when people wrong us to forgive them of something uh, or even to punish them first, uh, let's say like an easy example would be the, our court system. Uh, let's say somebody commits a, a crime and they go to jail for 10 years and then they're rehabilitated and released. Uh, justice is served. Uh, They've served their time uh, and they have moved on with their life. And hopefully uh, they have uh, changed as a person and become a better person and learned from that mistake. Uh, now that, that's perfect justice, right? Like, so it, what I'm saying is there, I'm not sure of what the bridge is between committing a finite sin and how you get to an infinite punishment because of that finite sin. I'm not, I'm not sure that the Bible explains why that finite sin equals an infinite punishment and thoughts like annihilationism and universalism are the ideas that try to uh, kind of solve some of these issues. Like, I'm sorry. It, 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 it's simply due to a low view of God, the severity of the consequences matches the offense that it was waged against to, to whom it was waged against. So if I go up to you, you seem like a super nice, intelligent, cool guy, but if I punch you uh, because whatever reason, I just want to fight you, I'm going to go to jail for simple battery. Uh, it's, it's a misdemeanor. Uh, I'm going to go to jail, but I'll, I'll be able to bond out the next day. It is what it is. If I go up to, president biden and go up and just knock him out in the face i'm going to be sent to an island and never be heard of again and it, it, it i did the same exact crime against somebody of higher authority and higher regards uh so the person to whom the the offense was waged against uh matched my consequence did the same exact thing but it was against somebody severe uh, extremely more important so if you take that and compare it to, from our worldview, an extremely high, all-powerful creator God who knows all things and is completely good in everything that he does and is in, who's the supreme sovereign of the universe, the king of glory. And if we not only break his laws, but literally become his enemies by following his adversary, Ephesians chapter two, that we, we, that we're followers of Satan, that, that we're haters of God and we're lovers of ourselves, then the consequence is going to match the offense because we have slapped in the face such a supreme figure, if you will. So uh, the scriptures are very clear about the holiness of God. 
And I think that the problem that we keep coming back to in this discussion is that from this universalism perspective, um, to put it really plainly, you just don't think you're as bad as you think as you actually are. Uh, the Bible says, hey, you're a sinner deserving of hell. You are a lawbreaker. You're an enemy of God. And you're really, really bad. And you're saying, eh, I'm not that bad. I'm actually a pretty good person. And nobody would ever deserve such a heinous punishment. And I would actually, and then they would go as far as redefining it as torture and as unloving and as uh, like, this is incredibly crazy that somebody could punish somebody for doing such a small, I mean, insignificant, you're, you're, it's a minimization and a justification um, and the deflection of sin um, because you're, you're no longer taking responsibility for the, for the heinous actions um, of yourself and instead blaming God for, um, for just punishing you. I mean, this is, this is what two-year-olds do. Um, and I, I'm so sorry if I meant that, if that sounded, um, that, that I have a two-year-old. I did not mean that in a, in a negative way. If that came across negative, I, I'm sorry. I, I literally have a little two-year-old at home. And it's just, but this is what they do. This is what toddlers do, where they, they, they start to minimize and justify their sin once they get punished. And they're saying, well, what I did wasn't that bad. And in, in, in what you're giving me, I don't actually deserve. It, it, it's not true. Um, yeah. And- yeah. Um, I think that I think that that's a good illustration that you pointed out about uh, the, the position and standing of the person who is offended will influence the severity of the uh, consequences. Right. Right. Uh, that's that's a, that's a good illustration. But I would. I would say that I think universalists would not say that sin, sin or uh, it, sin is uh, light or not important in the view of a holy God. I think that they would just have, they would probably argue that they have such a high view of God as a God of love, and they believe what the Bible says about God being loving kindness, about how he will re, uh, redeem those to himself. Uh, they would argue that they have a high view of God's loving kindness that uh, ultimately would they, God would redeem uh, uh, all creations to himself. So I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that they believe in universalism because they have a low view of God. I, I, I would think they would argue they have a very high view of God while still taking their own sin uh, very seriously, because again, like many of the universalists that I've read seem to have pretty, pretty dire ideas of what hell and, uh, the, uh, uh, separation from God is like, and it's, it's, it's pretty rough. I, I hate to begin to do this, but we are going to have to start to wrap up here at some point and it may be worth another discussion further, but, um, cause there's so many directions we still want to go. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to begin to wrap it up just kind of in response to what we've just been saying. Um, you know, we want to, we want to, we want to always emphasize the loving kindness of God. One of the scriptures that I'm consistently reminded of when we think of God's kindness is actually talking about his kindness in the context of his judgment. Um, and it's Romans chapter two. It's a verse that we often quote, but we almost never give the context for, uh, in Romans chapter two, start, I'll start in verse three. Paul says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, speaking of unrighteousness yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I think that scripture speaks perfectly to the Christian universalist who says, yeah, I know, I know that that we're sinners and we're deserving of wrath, but you know, God's loving and he's kind. And, and Paul saying, yeah, but you're presuming on his kindness by thinking that God's patience for your sin is going to last for eternity, because at some point he is going to pour out his wrath and judgment on those who, who sin and those who are unrighteous. And in his kindness, he is providing for you right now uh, an opportunity to repent. Um, but he, that will not last forever. And, and those who continue in their sin, presuming upon his kindness, presuming that, well, God loves me um, because the Bible says he does. And so one day he's going to save me like he's going to and he's going to save all people. And he might you know, there might be some punishment and whatever. But like ultimately his kindness is going to win out. And Paul says, but his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, because one day that that there's not going to be an opportunity for you to repent anymore. And you, all you're doing is storing up more and more wrath for yourself. Um, and so, you know, I hate, I hate to begin to wrap up the discussion, but I think, um, you know, I think we can go on forever. And, and I would just say to kind of begin to, to tie this up for now, um, we have to, once again, I, it's beating a dead horse. It's, it's a broken record. I get it. But this is, this is the belief that we hold to that. What, what does the scripture say about these things? Who is God? Who is man in relation to God? Did any of us deserve his salvation? Um, and, and what does it mean that he's loved us? And what, is, what does his kindness mean that he would even give us an opportunity to repent? Um, and to one point you made earlier, what I hope I hope these truths do for me, uh, because it, I'm, I'm, I fail at this so often, is that it drives me to want to tell more and more people about his kindness and his grace and his mercy toward those who repent, um, because I don't want anybody to experience the wrath of hell. Um, but I do believe that there, there are many who will, um, and that, that truth should that truth should sadden us and it should, because God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked, right? Even God does not delight in that, um, but he is just and he pours out his wrath on sinners and they deserve it um, because, because of their sin against the holy God. Um, so yeah, again, I'm, I'm having trouble holding myself back from continuing to go on, on tangents here because it, it's a good conversation um, and it's, it's a worthwhile conversation because this is eternal, eternal things that we're talking about. So uh, let me just give uh, maybe 30 seconds to each of you if you have some final kind of concluding thoughts or whatever that you that you really want to bring. Um, if not, we will we'll begin to wrap this up. Um, yeah, no, I just I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk about these things. I, too, think that they are very important, uh, whether you're a believer or not or any stripe of faith out there. I think that looking at these questions, the implications of them and trying to discern what is truth, big T truth, because I also believe in that is, is very important. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate the conversation. Yeah. We appreciate you taking the time, man. Um, cause I mean, you knew you, you had listened to some of the podcasts before coming on, so you knew where we were coming from. And, um, I, I believe that, uh, all of us hopefully did a decent job of, of, you know, challenging one another, but, but with respect and, and kindness. And I think we should, we should have more of that. Let's be firm in our convictions, but kind in our approach. Travis, you got anything? You always do, but give me less than 30 seconds. What do you got? Yeah, yeah, no, really, Corey. I just wanted to thank you for coming on and being so awesome as to just engaging with us. Um, these conversations are 
significant. And um, if we have another one, which I hope we do, uh, I will look forward to that. Um, if not, you know, it just, I leave you with the plea of thinking through everything that we talked about today as to not, um, not, 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 don't rely on the authority of these, of these universalists uh, and, and scholars and of their readings and of, and of what you're, and of what you're reading or even of, in, and not even of their interpretation of the text. Um, I would do a little bit of homework into what interpretation really looks like faithfully historically in the church and then try to read the text for yourself and to, uh, to engage the text in that manner. Um, I know that you went to school for, and I know that you came from a different context and that you've read the Bible a lot. Um, but that's the only way that you're going to be able to gain some insights into this truth rather than reading, um, particular scholars and what they said, um, because it's more about what they mean and what their intent of their heart is in when writing that. So, so that, that'd be my plea, brother. Um, I appreciate you coming on. And um, I'm really grateful for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you all. All right. Well, this is going to be the end of the episode. Um, Travis and I have some plans to continue into the podcast. Uh, We got some exciting stuff hopefully coming up, some more discussions, uh, even another guest on the podcast hopefully soon. And um, if Travis could get his act together, the podcast will go on uh, is is my that's what I'm going to that's how I'm going to pose it, because my life is all together. I got all the pieces in place. Travis just needs to get on with the program. Yeah, what a snitch. I I agree. Until next time, this has been Kenny and come on, Travis. Travi B. That's Sorry, right. I'm That's <laughs> all right. That's all right. This is the struggles of Zoom and not being in the same room. All right. Appreciate y'all listening. Until next time, signing off.